All right. How's it going, guys? Welcome, welcome. You're in the right spot. If you're here to learn about Romans, uh, you made it. Thank you for trekking through what is freezing to most people who grew up in Dallas and more than cold, uh, and you made it here. So, yeah, we are really grateful, you guys, giving up Thursday night just to learn and to dive into your word, to study your Bible, and it's really fun. I mean, that's what makes uh, us do what we do because you guys are out there and you're, you're living it and we just want to go, man, how can we equip the saints for the work of ministry? So we hope that's what this does for you. But the way we're going to start tonight is we're going to give you some table time, go around, meet some new people, and then we'll come back up and dive into the teaching. So what you're actually going to do to start is just work your way around the table real quick, kind of uh, get through the awkwardness. I know it's not always the most fun. Uh, but just do some quick introductions. Hey, here's my name, kind of here's my uh, role at work, and here's what I do. Here's kind of how I went at Watermark. And then we'd really like you guys to just say, hey, here's the one or two reasons why I'm in this study. I want to get this out of tonight. So we'll come back up here in about 10 or 15 minutes and we'll dive into it. One thing also we want to say is uh, there will be a resource next week for you guys. You guys have probably already seen these books. I'm trying to get this out of the way because I'll forget to say this later. So these will be for sale next week as you guys come. If you want a further resource when you're studying Romans, again, this is just the one we would say out of anything to study, this is a great first step. So going to get that part out of the way now. But go ahead and uh, talk amongst yourself. All righty. We're going to get going. Uh, we'll settle in here. Just real quick, my name is Connor Baxter. I get to serve here on the Dallas campus in the community role on our community team. So I love what I get to do. Uh, and so I get to primarily work with single guys in their mid-20s. Have a few married groups, but get to oversee and shepherd. So it's fun seeing a few of you guys in here that I've run into before. Uh, but that's me. And my story is just uh, one of grace, like all of ours, right? I was a guy who grew up in an awesome family. My parents had a great marriage. They loved the Lord. And I was one of those guys who just neglected the provision God had given me through high school, right? I was not living the way I should have. I had everything I could have imagined, and I just still chose to go my own way. And thankfully, Hebrews 12 is true, that God disciplines the one he loves. So he led me into getting into a lot of trouble that revealed a lot, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me. And he kind of pulled me out of the mess I was in. And so that kind of projected me on a path of really wanting to take my faith seriously through college and just got an opportunity after opportunity to grow and learn and be around older men who love the Lord and got to show me the way. And then uh, stumbled in here about a year and a half ago because my wife grew up around Dallas and Watermark and got to do the residency program. And then this summer is when I rolled into full time here at Watermark. So man, it's, it's fun. I, I know there's guys in the room that could easily be up here and teach way better than I can. So thank you for uh, sitting underneath this for a little bit. Uh, but I'm excited. I'm excited you guys are here. We want to start off with just asking what were some of those things that you guys said, hey, here's why I'm here to Night. And then before we go with that, we're, we're going to use a little bit of athleticism. So we have this thing called the catch box. There's a mic in here. So whoever raises their hand, I'm going to throw you this. You're going to speak into the mic, kind of why you're here. And we'll do two or three people and then we'll bring it back up. So uh, don't let this scare you. It's pretty easy to catch. But yeah, so somebody raise your hand. Love to share why you're here. Come on. Hello. 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 Give it five seconds. Yeah, shake it twice. Hit it. She's unmuting it. She's working real hard. Test, test. Yeah, I'm here because um, I love Paul because, see, Romans wrote, talks about, like, you know, the light of Christ, like Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9.10, 10, Ephesians 2.8.9, and 
I don't remember what else, but it's there just like go. that. It's what I love about this. And Paul was a guy who uh, was a Jew, used to attack Christians, and then later on he was blinded because uh, Jesus touched him. Why are you persecuting me in Acts 26? And said, I am Jesus who are, whom you are persecuting. And then later on, gave his life to Jesus and turned his name to Paul. Boom. There you go. That's half of what we're going over tonight. <laughs> All right, yeah. Here. What else? What are some other reasons you guys are here tonight? What are you hoping to get out of this? We'll wait. Oh, yeah. Here we go. See, I wrestled, so we didn't play with sports, but I would give my best shot. Hey! Be here all night. Good catch. One, two. Um, <laughs> uh, just actually to learn about the righteousness of God and deepen um, my knowledge as to why we believe, uh, me and my wife, um, why we believe what we believe, and um, yeah, just to deepen our knowledge. It's great. She'll help you right behind you. It's awesome. Love it. Let's go one or two more real quick. Hey, girl. Oh. <laughs> you got an arm. Um, I'm mostly here just because um, just watching the way that Paul walked with God um, and daily just gave his life to God and the way that he uh, pursued God. Um, I just kind of want to learn a little bit more and grow deeper uh, with God's Word and just kind of almost sort of become like Paul in a way to uh, just really listen to God when I need to instead of being stubborn and not listening. <laughs> so. Yeah, we're here for some of the same reasons, I can tell you that. Let's go, let's go one more. I think there's one. Boom. Yeah, we'll do that and then we'll keep going. Here you go, girl. Nice. Got some athletes. Yes, girl. Um, I am here for like all the same reasons as everyone else. I want to study Romans, but also... Um, fairly new here at Watermark. I wanted to meet new people and study the Bible with other members here. So, Awesome. Awesome. Well, guys, uh, man, th- thank you again for being here. And, and I, I don't want to just teach you guys Romans. I mean, that, that would be just terrible if we left here and just knew more. Uh, really, the goal is that we understand the God of Romans, right? That we grow in that relationship. And so that's, that's what we want to get out of our time in the Word, right? So this doesn't lead to personal applications, to life change. I mean, that's not a church that any of us want to be a part of. And so uh, coming out of God's Word, that it leads to action. And right, Paul's a great guy to study if you want to learn about how God's Word and his message and his story lead to action. And that's what I'm praying. That's what I've been praying for our time is that this really would lead to just a city on a hill, a church that's on fire, that's fired up. And there's a lot in here, right? There's a high calling in the book of Romans. So it's really fun. Uh, but let me pray for us and we will dive in. So God, just thank you for your kindness towards all of us in the room that so many stories and uh, testimonies and who knows what people had to go through today just to be here. But everybody in the room is who you want here. And it's worth just pausing and recognizing just your sovereignty and your control in this entire situation. Thank you for preserving your word for thousands of years, for using guys and writing down things in the context of history uh, to where we can be here and be encouraged and strengthened and hear about your testimony and your righteousness and your goodness just through what you've been doing. And I pray that uh, the stories of the Bible wouldn't just stick to the pages within the Bible, that it would be a part of our lives and it would be common for us to experience similar things that were going on back then. So be with us tonight, help us learn, help us to uh, stay focused and to make it through uh, just a couple chapters of Roman. But I pray ultimately we wouldn't be hearers of the word, but doers. 
And so uh, be with us. It's only going to happen if you move. And so we're leaving it up to you, and we're trying to do all that we can to be faithful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, you know, so starting off, especially if we're going to spend four weeks studying Romans, we want to spend a little bit of time on context. I think of context in the way of, uh, you know, when you're bowling, having those bumpers on the side. So if you don't have those bumpers, there's a decent chance, at least for me, that you're going to get in the gutter, right? And a lot of times, if you leave context outside of when you're studying God's word, you can easily find yourself off the path. And it's easy to take the different stories or different verses out of context and misuse them. And it can lead to a lot of bad theology, which leads to a lot of bad practices, which leads to just hurting people. And so context, we would just say, is king as you're studying the Bible. So we want to set the stage for you. We want to start with assuming you don't know anything about Romans or Paul or the Bible. You are at a good spot. We're going to start fresh and work through. And hopefully, uh, I'll, have to, I'll try to do my best to tie in why the context is going to impact specifically what we're going over tonight. And then just for you to know, we'll, we'll, we'll take some pauses throughout our time together and throw around the catch box again, which I know you're all excited about, uh, for you to be able to just ask questions, okay? So if you've got questions as we go, write those down. There'll be a chance for that. So we may stop in between, just kind of depends on timing. We may stop at the end again. We'll see where we're at. But just know there'll be a Q&A type session. We'll try and get through as many questions as we can. We'll try and help people. And just more than likely, if you have a question, there's other people in the room who have the same question. So just ask, okay? As simple as it may be or as complex, uh, we'll, we'll try and stay on uh, track with what we're answering. But still, just know that there'll be time. So get that out there before we get rolling. All right, so context. Book of Romans. You always want to ask who, what, when, where, why. Why did this guy write? Who did he write to? Why was he writing? What was going on in history? So we're going to walk through some of that stuff right now. The author of the book of Romans is Paul. So we've already heard a decent amount about Paul and who he was, but you just got to understand who this guy is and how it impacts what he's writing. So Paul was a guy uh, that if you don't know anything about him and you just knew how much he wrote of the Bible, he didn't write the most of the New Testament, but he wrote the most letters of the New Testament. So he didn't have the most words in there, but he had the most uh, letters continuously in the books. So you're going, okay, this must have been a guy who grew up and underneath some Christian household or Christian parents or was taught the Christian faith from a young age. He must have had his life together for a long time. He's got to have some story like that. And really, uh, some of that's actually true, but some of that is completely opposite. Paul, for a long time, was an enemy of the faith and a persecutor of the faith. And so why that is, is because Paul grew up underneath uh, the Jewish religious system. And in that system where he was at, he would have studied underneath rabbis, probably from a young age as tradition would hold. So think of him as a guy who would have Old Testament, uh, like a doctorate in that, right? From DTS or Southwestern, he would have been the guy who just knew a ton. So you've got that guy who understands the word. And when I say Bible in that time was just your Old Testament. He was a scholar of the Old Testament, set above most people. He dedicated his life to it. And you, you got a guy, and you guys can remember probably guys like this in high school or college, or maybe you're this guy who's not just brilliant, but also like dedicated. Okay, that was Paul to a T. Paul was climbing the ranks of the Jewish system, like, like a, just continually, 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 always working, 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 and was growing. So he wasn't the, the president or overseeing the whole thing, but he would have been probably one or two-star general if you're using army terms. So he was a guy that was dedicated, was disciplined, studied. He knew more about the word than most guys. He knew how to use it. Not only was he dedicated, he was zealous. 
So he was living out his faith that he knew more than you, better than you. And what that would have resulted in in this time was being a persecutor of Christians. So what you gotta understand about the Jewish system of the day or the Jewish religion, which Christianity is based and rooted out of, is uh, it's, I, I liken it to, if you're at, let's just say a gas station, you're there with your bride and uh, there's kind of a guy there who may be interacting with other people and kind of flirting with other girls or maybe you're at dancing or whatever. Uh, and you kind of look at that guy and it's kind of funny and you're like, man, that guy's a little crazy, blah, blah, blah. But then he steps up and starts talking to your wife. That changes the game a little bit. You were, you were messing around with other girls, kind of talking to him, but you just stepped up and you started talking to my wife. Now I've got a serious problem. That's what it would have felt like to a Jew at the time because the Jew, Jews would have been worshiping God, the Old Testament, and now Christians are coming in and saying, hey, that God, your God is the God we serve. And that Old Testament that you guys have been studying, that law and everything you know is now what we know. And not just that, that there's more. All this stuff you guys have been looking forward to, it's here and you've missed it. Okay, so they just stepped into the dance with their bride and that would have caused tension. So, so naturally what Paul would have done is go, okay, these guys are, create, are, are blaspheming at the ultimate expense, right? They're claiming some guy was the Messiah, was the king, was God, that he was here. You can't do that. You can't say that the, God, the, the king of our faith is here and we've missed it. So we've got to silence that. We've got to shut that down. That's who Paul was. He was known for persecuting the Christian faith. And so you think about that, but now he's in the, the, the Bible, right? And the Christian side of things in the New Testament, how is that? And like you heard earlier, Paul had a run in with Christ, literally, uh, where Christ showed himself in a way to him where it just knocked him on his rear and he goes, okay, Jesus was who he said he was. So Paul had one of the most dramatic conversion experiences. And you got to understand to, to other believers at the time, this would have been like if the leader of ISIS now became a Christian. So he's going from persecuting and now he's claiming that he's of the faith, right? If ISIS sent just their whole organization changed to, hey, we're now a Christian organization. We want to send 10 members of our organization to every church in America. You'd be going, I don't know if I want 10 people from ISIS showing up just because you're claiming that now you guys are all Christians, right? That's what it felt like. That was a tension going on. That's who Paul was to everybody. But once he encountered Christ, it changed his life. And Paul spent a short season on his own, going back through the Old Testament, going, how can everything I know about the Old Testament be true with who Christ was and, and what he did? And he reconciled those two things. He spent some time with some of the predominant Christian leaders and really married his faith together and understood how the Jewish system is the Christian and Jewish and Christianity, it's one and the same. And then he made, his life then became this journey to spread the gospel throughout the world and did a lot of reconciling between Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles throughout the nation. So that's who the author of this letter is, is Paul and a guy who had a crazy story and a transformation process. It's also gonna be helpful to kind of know what's going on in the early uh, Christian church. So Christ died AD 33 and rose again and then ascended. So he's gone. Shortly after that, you have in Acts 2, which is right after your gospels in your Bible, the, now the work of the Holy Spirit through God's people. And that's where the Spirit starts to dwell in every believer. And this happens by uh, the Spirit coming down and pouring itself out on people and they're speaking in tongues. And it was a crazy experience, but that experience happened in the context of a Jewish fest or a Jewish um, feast during, the, during Pentecost. And so you had a lot of Jews that were in Jerusalem and now this Christian experience and the Spirit is there and now all these Jews are going, okay, we don't know what to think about this, but this sounds like this is God. And they started to know God, they started to follow him. They started to trust that Christ was who he said he was. And this is all happening in AD 33. 
So why do I tell you that? Because we're going to get and find out that Romans wasn't written until AD 57. So what, how does that impact what we're going to read tonight? Well, in AD 33, tradition will probably state what happened was there was Jews from Rome who came down to Jerusalem, were at Pentecost, would have had this experience, would have professed Christ was who he said he was, believed in him, trusted in the gospel, and taken the gospel with them back to Rome. Right, so that by the time Paul's writing to him, Christianity's already gotten to Rome and it's already spread. So that's how the 33 AD impacts what we're writing or what Paul's now writing in 57 AD. And a couple of things that happened in between there that are significant uh, is in 34 AD was when Paul had his conversion experience. So that was a year after all that stuff we just talked about. He kind of spent some time on his own, learned the Bible, grew, and then became what, what we would say is probably the well-known missionary of all time. And he went through three different phases of missionary journeys, right? The first in AD 47 and 48. And what he would do, he kind of had his outpost. He'd go out to some of the surrounding places and come back, kind of do a loop. Then he'd do a second and he would widen his circle and he was expanding. He was taking the gospel out to new places. And while he was doing that, while that was going on, on his third missionary journey, when he was in Corinth, he wrote to the Roman church. So what was going on in Rome was, while he was on one of those first or second missionary journeys, was the Jews in Rome had actually been kicked out of Rome. So why does that matter? How does that play into what we're going to read tonight? Well, when the Jews were kicked out of Rome because of the disruptance that was going on, Christianity wouldn't have left Rome. Jewish Christians might have left Rome, but Gentiles, which just means non-Jews, might have been left in Rome who were Christians. And so why that is significant is because they didn't have the law, they didn't know the Old Testament, they didn't have the systems, they didn't have the traditions. All they knew was Christ, they knew they had the Spirit, they would have heard through some oral tradition what Christ had done. They didn't have all this Jewish stuff. So the Jews started trickling back into Rome before Paul wrote Romans. And when they got into Rome, there would have been a lot of clashing of heads because now these Jewish Christians or just Jews are coming back to Rome where Christianity is spread without Judaism. And how can that be? How can we reconcile these things? How are you going to tell me that for 2,000 years we have all these prophets, we have all these stories, we have God delivering people out of Egypt, giving us the law, the tabernacle, we've done these same sacrifice systems forever, we've been circumcising people, and you're going to tell us you've been doing none of that and God's been working here? They didn't, they didn't have a category for this. They didn't have New Testament yet. They didn't have Romans yet. So that was going on. The tension between Jewish Christians and Christianity or even Judaism and Christianity was just, you couldn't paint the divide more. You couldn't paint the, the, the clashing of heads because you're messing, when you're messing with a, a Jewish person, you're not just messing with their religion, but their identity, right? It's almost like an identity crisis form. It was all they knew. It was family. It was tradition. So now you're starting to play with everything they've known to be true for a long time. So Paul, that's part of what he's going to address. A lot of the themes, and especially when you get to chapters 9, 10, 11, he's going to talk about how these two things reconcile. And through this book, he's going to talk about what the law's purpose is and how that ties in. But ultimately, how the gospel marries these things, two things together. And there's one common theme from Old Testament to New Testament in the person of Christ and the gospel. Uh, a couple other things that are important to know before we dive in is... Uh, Make sure I didn't miss anything on context. That would be helpful. Yeah, here, here's what I like to say. Uh, fun facts about Romans. Okay, these are the things I try and remember because if you get in circles and say these things, you'll sound like you know what you're talking about. Okay, uh, they're great. And so unique features is another way to say it, but something that is distinct about the book of Romans compared to other books. A few of those being Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, kind of like we just discussed. All right, it was already a church without Paul. Why, why does that matter? If you don't know much about Paul, what he would do on those missionary journeys is plant the church, leave, and write back to it. 
So this was unique in that way, that this was a place Paul hadn't been to yet. It was a place Paul longed to go and also saw past and actually wanted to use Rome as a launching pad further into Spain and other places. So that's just unique and different about Romans. Also, Romans is the longest uh, writing and letter of Paul's, and it's also the deepest and most wide theological. It's by far his most theological book, and uh, it, it just is more intense than anything else he, he wrote. So it's greater in theology. And then th- this is a fun one. If you say this, def- people will definitely think you're a scholar. It's just the book of Romans, Paul uses more Old Testament quotes than all his other letters combined. So you can take all those, add them up, how much he quoted the Old Testament, and you go, oh, no, Paul quoted that way more in the book of Romans. And again, going back to our context, what was going on in the clashing, of course he's going to use a lot of Old Testament references because he's trying to show the people that this is the same thing, the same God. Jesus was who he said he was. He was the fulfillment of all this stuff we've been talking about, right? And that was what was unique with Paul was he was a scholar in the Jewish system for a long time. So it's, it's, he had credibility in that world. He knew the lingo. He knew everything they knew and probably more. He would have been probably a teacher of most of the people who would have been fighting the faith, which all that is significant. And again, why he quotes the Old Testament so much. And then the last piece is just the way, the format and the structure of Romans is amazing. And it makes it actually really easy to understand and follow because Paul's just gonna walk through a logical argument through the whole entire book. So he's going to use uh, hypotheticals. He's going to make up straw mans. He's going to interact with uh, his audience almost as if they're there and they're posing him questions. He's going to anticipate the questions readers would ask and he's going to answer them as he's writing. And he's going to build it like a, a building block, just one on the other, his argument. So it's like a lawyer presenting a defense case or, or really on the offense and making accusations and building on his points. So if you follow his theme and if you kind of know the outline, you can see how his argument builds. And so today, hopefully you'll walk out of here seeing, okay, this is how Paul's lining up his argument for the first three chapters. Here's what his points are. Here's how he drives home that point. Here's why he uses the analogies and examples he does. It's because he's making these points and he's trying to drive this conversation to a certain place, which makes it really fun. Because once you kind of understand that, you can keep up with Paul's doing. But if you just kind of pluck out a paragraph of Romans, it can be really hard to kind of go, I have no idea what this brother's talking about. But as you learn it and study the context and know that about Romans, it makes it a lot easier to follow. All right, almost done with context. You guys are doing good. Let me take a drink of water. Okay, as you, uh, you can see up there, the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God. We're gonna to get to it in a second. But that's, what is the righteousness of God? It is the gospel. That is the theme of Romans. The righteousness of God is revealed. How does he do that? Through the gospel. That is his point. That is his point in case. That is what he's driving at. That's what drives the argument. That's what drives the flow. That's what he's going back to when he's talking. So that is the theme. So if you understand that, you're, you're way ahead of the game. That's what he's coming from. That's why he's writing what he's writing. And then there's, there's four big sections of Romans, the way we've divided out and that's easy to follow and why you're here for four weeks because there are four big chunks of Romans. So the first, which we're covering tonight, is sin. That's chapters one through three. So if you're trying, trying to keep an outline or writing notes, that's what I would put. You know, the outline of Romans, I'd go theme, righteousness of God, chapters one through three, sin. Four through eight is gonna be salvation. Nine through 11 is gonna be sovereignty. And 12 through 16 is going to be service. So sin, salvation, sovereignty, service. 
All those things will make more and more sense as you return and get more uh, insight into those. Okay, so that's the theme. That's the structure. That's the big chunks. And that's where we're heading with some of this stuff. All right, so let's actually start diving in. Romans 1. So staying on the theme for just a second. I mean, the whole theme of the book comes out of verse 16 and 17. And uh, if you listen to Lecrae, you'll know 116 already. Any Lecrae fans? Three, four millennials. All right. Uh, That's rap music. There's Christian rap artists out there. It's just good to know. All right, so he says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You just look at that first instance, or that first phrase he uses, I'm not ashamed. You, you've got to understand up to this point in Paul's life, he's been in prison, he's been beaten, he's been betrayed, he's, he's walked right back into the towns, he's been kicked out of, he's been shipwrecked, he's done everything that could possibly, he could probably think of doing for the gospel and he's not ashamed of it, he's proud of it. Okay, he's okay with being the guy in the room is the only one who knows the gospel and talking about the gospel. Paul was unashamed. It was a part of everything he did. Everywhere he went, he took the gospel with him. And it is what drove him to go to the places he went. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed of this. And really, if we don't come out of our study in the time of Romans, I mean, truly, and this isn't where your heart's at, we haven't studied the book of Romans right. If, you're, if, you're hard, if there's not a fire under your tail leaving here in four weeks or hopefully a little bit tonight, then we're not doing our job or you're not getting after it like you should. You should feel a whole new level of appreciation, understanding, and urgency for the gospel when you study Romans. Because Paul's entire thing, when he kind of gets through all of his theological and the gospel side and starts talking about the implications of the gospel in Romans 12, he says, in the view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything you do, as you're living, as you're breathing, is your spiritual worship to God. And he's saying the gospel is what drives all that. So if we don't leave here, we've missed it. We've whiffed. And so as you're spending time, at least over the next week, if praying, memorizing, knowing, meditating, journaling about Romans 1, 16, 17, that's what you want to do. Don't go through these four weeks. If you get to the end of the four weeks and you're not sharing your faith more, if your faith isn't driving you to make changes in your personal life, then you're not studying God's word the way he meant it to be studied, all right? And this is just what we're gonna learn as we watch Paul and his argument. This is what drives it. He's not ashamed. Uh, Going in more into the uh, theme there, I'll start or I'll continue by telling a story. So I'm a freshman in college and uh, I'm starting to hang out around this girl who now is my wife. And she has a good friend, her sorority, who has a little brother who's a senior named Heath, senior in high school, who has to have a heart transplant. Okay, and so literally this guy's heart is removed from his body. Somebody else's heart who had passed away was put into his body, right? Crazy, had a heart transplant. So this was a guy, I never met him, didn't know him. Uh, we had wristbands, all that, you know, what people do because we were just praying for this guy. Like, look, this, this is one of my friends, little brother, never met him, but I'm gonna be praying for this guy. I said, pray for Heath and had some other stuff. Well, Heath, uh, a year later, it was time for him to go to school. But, you know, he had spent a couple months uh, bedridden in a hospital, just got a transplant, didn't have a ton of social interaction, uh, couldn't be in the dorm or anything like that. He, he had to go to a spot in a home because of his heart transplant and the disease. And so uh, his option for going to college, since he wanted to go, was to live in the closet of his sister's house with her roommates. 
So you don't have to have much compassion for a guy to be like, okay, I, I got to help a brother out. So I pick up the phone because I know he's going to be living with his sister and three of her roommates in her closet. I'm like, okay, no guy can withstand that in college. So let me, let me just pick up the phone. So I call this guy. I go, man, Heath, I know you don't know me, man, but I've been praying for you for a year. I've heard about your story. I've heard about your walk with Christ. I've heard about how you've shared the gospel through that. I think that's awesome, man. I, I would love to offer you to come live with me and six of my friends at a house. I think it'd be really fun. We, we try and get out, man. I don't, I don't know what your circumstance is. We'll help you. But dude, I would love for you to come live with us. It'll be awesome. And I'm waiting. I'm like, okay, what's this guy going to say? And he goes, all right, yeah, that kind of sounds, that's a good idea. Yeah, I'll do that. That sounds good. And I'm like, this guy is going to be lame. He's not going to be any fun. I'm not going to want to hang out with him. This is a dud. I thought I was going to get kind of another guy who's going to uh, take the hill with us. And this guy kind of sounded like he just had a heart transplant. So uh, I'm like, I, it's too late for me to take back my offer. So he accepts. Uh, and he, you know, of course, he ends up being one of my lifelong friends. Uh, but Heath shows up. I mean, I'll never forget. He comes in first day of school and uh, he's he's carrying, a, you know, those plastic kind of things you get from Walmart that almost every guy has in their dorm. And he's carrying one of those drawers and it has like a couple t-shirts in it. And he's just carrying that box and he can't make it up the stairs. I had to, I had to move him into our house. I mean, he couldn't carry anything. He was frail. He was weak, couldn't do anything. I just remember looking at that. And, and, and so why I keep telling you the story is because Heath had to take uh, these pills to keep his heart going, to keep his heart healthy. Right, so you have a heart transplant, you know, that your body is automatically rejecting the heart you have. It thinks it's, it's fighting against your own body. So you have to take medicine to trick your body and to think it's your heart and do all this other stuff. I don't know what all it did. But he understood the depravity of his heart and he had to take this, this, these pills to stay alive. Okay, and, and really, as I think about that, that sounds exactly like what Paul gets into in, here in verse 16 and 17. Because he talks about, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right, so his heart needed salvation, needed those pills. He understood his need for that medicine because he understood his, the condition of his heart. And Paul, what he's about to get into in the first couple of chapters here is, is trying to help people understand the depravity of their own heart, their brokenness. And that's where Paul's about to go. And he's saying, every one of us is broken and fallen. And you've got to grasp that to understand your need for the gospel. Okay, and that's what he's saying right here. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is that medicine that we all need. And I, I just keep thinking about that story in Heath. And I go, man, th this is what Paul lived like. He lived like everybody he knew had a heart transplant and he had the medicine to give them and it was free. And if you just think about if you had that, if those, if those pills were in your pocket tonight, and you knew you, you were leaving here. We gave each of you medicine that would heal somebody's heart from their heart transplant. What would you do? I mean, it would be crazy for you to go home and watch Netflix or go to sleep. I mean, you'd be driving to gas stations, hospitals, Walmart, anywhere you could go to just find people. Hey, do you have a heart problem? Man, let me tell you, I've got the medicine. It's free. Take this here. That's how Paul lived with the gospel. He was everywhere. He knew he had what, what he could heal people with. He wasn't healing people from a heart transplant. He was saving people from an eternal separation from God. In Paul's first three chapters, what he has to do is he has to go hard to the hole on helping people understand they need God because they stand guilty and condemned. And that's what he's saying. It's for the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And so as uh, Dwight Moody famously said, and has been quoted often, 
The gospel is like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the door in, of the cage and get out of the way. And that's, that's really true. That's how Paul lived, man. He wasn't worried about the way you were going to respond. He didn't care about the way it was going to come across. He didn't really care how it was going to make you feel. He just knew that he had a lion in his pocket and all he had to do was let that thing loose. And that's how he lived his life and shared the gospel continuously. Uh, the reason he says in there, first the Jew, then the Gentile, kind of going back to some of that context, is the Jews, right, had their first opportunity. Even Christ's ministry when he came was first to the Jews. He was working in synagogues and talking to Jews and sharing the gospel with them, and then to the Gentiles. And you'll learn when you get to week 9 and 10 and 11 why God's using us, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and how that's working into the plan of salvation for all time. But he's saying, hey, it came first to the Jews. We came first here to Pentecost, it was first here, and now it's to the Gentiles as well. So it's for, the gospel is for everybody, is the point he's making. And then verse 17, we'll spend a little more time there as we keep going. For in it, it says, so for in what? The gospel. What is the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, this is our theme, this is where we're getting it out of, is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if we're going to use this theme, the righteousness of God, as our theme for the book of Romans, we need to spend a little time talking about what that means. And so if you think about righteousness, there's a lot of ways to think about it. There's a couple different ways uh, theologians talk about what he means here, right? You've got the righteousness of God, his character, his holiness, his pure, his just. I mean, he is righteous. He is all things that are right. But the, the way really to better understand this is this is God providing a way for people to live with him and be in right relationship with God. So right, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, those who have faith, for those who have faith, from faith, for faith. And what he's doing is a righteous God is righteously reconciling unrighteous people to himself. And so how does God do that without compromising his own righteousness, right? So if we're broken, unrighteous people, what is it that somehow takes us being able to relate rightly to a God who's perfect and who is righteous? And that's where Paul inserts the gospel and goes, that's the point. There's nothing you can do, right? It's all based on what God has done for you. So he doesn't compromise his justice, but he also doesn't shorten his love for you. And that's what the cross does. It demonstrates God's love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while, while we were still broken, while we all were broken, and this is the point Paul's about to go into, is that we're all broken. And while we were all broken, Christ paid for us. So God, in his love, finds a way to not compromise his justice in providing for us an escape from our own condemnation, right? Through Christ. That is the gospel. That's the message Paul is taking with him. And that's the theme. That's what's going to drive all of his argument moving forward. Okay, so now we're going to get into really kind of the flow of these next couple chapters and talk about, he's now, now Paul's, what he's about to do, so the first couple of verses and all that, I mean, if we have more time, we go into, there's, there's a lot in chapter one before this, before chapter, or before verse 16, 17, but he's going to do a greeting, he's going to talk to them, he's going to talk about his call and sharing the gospel, he's going to get to his theme, and now we're going to pick up in verse 18, and Paul's going to start to develop his argument. Okay, so for the rest of this book, especially through chapter 11, Paul is going to work through an argument. So this is kind of step one and phase one of his argument. Also, just a reminder, uh, be writing down questions. We'll have Q&A in a little bit. All right. So uh, 118. What Paul is going to do here for the next 
three chapters, really through chapter three, verse 20, is he's gonna make the argument that everybody, all humanity forever that's ever lived stands condemned before God with no excuse, right? He's making the point that we all need the gospel. Paul's writing to people and when he takes the gospel to places that don't understand their need for the gospel, they don't understand the need they have for that medicine. They don't know that their own heart is depraved and wicked and failing and gonna, and gonna kill them. They don't understand that. They don't yet understand their need for the gospel. So the first three chapters, what Paul's gonna do is build the need for every human that's ever lived for all time and why they need the gospel. Okay, so married folks in the room, you know what it's like anytime you come home and say, you never fill in the blank, or you always get on to me about this, or you always seem to blah, blah, blah. Anytime you use that all-encompassing words, it gets you in trouble, right? Like, really, I never do that. I never sweep this way. I never blah, blah, blah. That gets you in a lot of trouble. But Paul is making that claim. Anybody who's ever lived for all time stands condemned before God, rightly so, and is without excuse. And so the way Paul is going to develop his argument here is he's going to use three people that he's going to essentially put onto the stand and accuse and show why they're guilty. And these three people represent all of humanity. So the first uh, guy he's going to put on the chopping block, if you look in verses 18 through 32, is the pagan Gentile. So he's going he's gonna to put the pagan Gentile on the stand and accuse condemn and show that they're guilty. He's going to put a moral man on the stand. We get to chapter two, show why he's guilty. And he's going to put the privileged Jew on the stand and show why he's guilty. So that's where we're going. That's his outline for the next two and a half chapters. And uh, again, he's showing they're guilty. They're without excuse and in building the need for the gospel. So the first one, the pagan Gentile, this is the person who doesn't know God, didn't grow up in religious settings. Uh, doesn't know anything about the Jewish system, doesn't know anything about Christianity or whatever. This is the guy, just the pagan Gentile who wasn't a Jew, who had no knowledge of God, right? Or so he would claim. So he's gonna put this guy up on the stand and say, okay, why do you stand condemned? Why are you guilty without excuse? What is it that God would say, my wrath rightly falls upon you? And this is what God's gonna say. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For in his visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the key word there, what, what I do in my outline and the way a lot of guys do around here is I say, okay, the pagan is, is stands condemned because of creation. What does God use to, to show himself to those who don't have a religious system or fill in the blank, that aren't Jewish, don't have all this knowledge of God and the prophets and the coming Messiah? What, what about those guys? Well, they stand condemned because they do know God, is what God's gonna say in Romans 1. They know me how through my creation. So creation condemns the pagan man. And that's Paul's point off the bat. And he doesn't really lay off him much. He said, for although they knew God, again, they knew God. God had shown himself to him. He wasn't so wicked in that he kept himself hidden, right? He's made it evident through the things that have been created, right? So every mankind, this is what Paul's saying, every mankind that's ever lived in creation, which is to say anybody who's ever lived, stands condemned because creation points towards the creator, God. They, they have a knowledge of God. But why is it that they don't serve him? Because earlier, chapter one, they or chapter, or verse 18, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
And then he picks up in 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, so what happened? God revealed himself to people through creation, showed them what he was like. They knew even his attributes, his creativity, his beauty, the complexity, right? All that pointed design, pointed to the designer. They rejected that. They suppressed that. They thought they were wise in their own ways. They came up with their own things, own gods, own things they wanted to worship. And because they suppressed the truth, what did God do? And it says, for this reason... Are therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God. Again, this is what we got to catch. God gave them the truth about himself. He didn't hide himself from them. He revealed himself to them. They exchanged that. They exchanged what creation was pointing to and the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so it just says, hey, God, that, God just goes, is that, what you, is that what you guys want? Then you guys can have it. And he gives them up and he releases them to chase what they want to chase. And so God gives them up, verse 26, to dishonorable passions, right? He talks about women giving up natural relationships with women and men giving up natural relationships with women to consume each other, uh, consume themselves with each other. And then he just says, hey, they have their own due penalty. So th- this is Paul's argument in the first chapter. He's just saying, hey, the pagan Gentile, those who live without, without the religious system still stand condemned, still are put onto the stand and rightly confirmed as guilty with no excuse. And God is completely righteous and just in his doing. You know, and as I think about this, before we go on to the next one and the next guy he puts on the stand. So I had a, I was out to lunch uh, two or three days ago and had a, I was meeting one of my community group leaders who's leading one of our communities for me. He's doing a great job. We're catching up. We're talking about all things community and ministry and how he's doing and where he's at with his walk with the Lord. And we step outside after we finish our lunch. We're kind of catching up on the last two or three things we wanted to talk about. And uh, in front of us in the parking lot, we just hear this, and I look up, kind of surprised me. And it's a white minivan that just, stopped right in front of us. And there was a guy driving, there was a guy in the passenger seat and the guy in the passenger seat is kind of leaning out of the window looking at us and goes, hey, either of you guys want a sound system and a projector? <laughs> and uh, I, I look at my guy, you know, we're in the middle of ministry and you do what you always do when you're loving on somebody and caring for him. I just looked back at him. I said, sure. And uh, to my surprise, he just, I mean, I completely neglected the guy I was with. This guy pulls into the parking spot next to us and hops out of his car and comes running up to us. And I'm like, oh man, I just got myself into a 20 minute conversation. I really do not want a projector or a sound system. Even if I did, I don't have the money for it. I'm not really sure. This guy's a little bit sketchy and I don't always buy, you know, sound systems and projectors, but when I do, they do not come out of the back of a white minivan. <laughs> And uh, so he's, he gives me, he comes up to me running up, introduce himself. Hey, I'm James. Well, hey, I'm Connor, man. Let me just ask something before you get going with your spiel. Where'd you get your projector and TV screen? You know, it's a little, little sketchy. He goes, man, I've got the paperwork. A guy put the down payment down and he wanted it in his house and he changed his mind and he keeps going and uh, eventually gives us a spiel just for me to tell him I'm in ministry and there's no way I can afford his 5000 now $1,000 projector and uh, sound system. So anyways, but then I ask him, why do I tell you this? So then I ask him, I go, hey, let me ask you something real quick. Do you have a faith? And he just quickly goes, yeah, I do. I was like, awesome, man. What, what is it? He goes, me, myself, and I. And uh, that, that was a first for me, that quick of a response to me, myself, and I. And I'm kind of looking at this guy and he's kind of looking like, 
I don't know what to do with that. So I say, that, that's interesting, man. So does that mean that you believe in a God or not? Like, what does that mean? He goes, no, I don't believe in a God. I was like, oh, okay. So uh, what if I told you, you know, or I asked him, I said, well, what do you do with creation? You know, what do you think? How do you think all this came about? I mean, as you look at the stars, as you look at the sky, as you look around, I mean, how do you think this got here? And he just kind of said, well, I don't know. But, you know, I've, I've never had a need for God. And that, I mean, that rocked my world. And at that time, I didn't know that I'd be up here teaching Romans tonight. But kind of in, in what I did was went through Romans 1 with the guy. Uh, he's still not a believer and hasn't emailed me back. But um, <laughs> I tell you that just because I, I know we want to study the context. We're flying through Paul's argument. But I, I think it's worth hitting pause here just to talk about the state of where we're at kind of as a nation and just as a people. I mean, we're at the point now where you're not really trying to defend the resurrection or the death of Christ. I mean, we're, we're having to talk about is there a God or not? And out of Romans, he's about to continue his argument and talk about the moral man and other things. But one of the, the ways that God uses uh, creation is to show himself to people. And so that is the way I take people when they are claiming, hey, I don't think there is a God. And so that's just good to know of, hey, that's what Paul did for the people who claim not to know a God or, or that there wasn't a God. And so as you get out there, I mean, the, you kind of have to evangelize people to the fact that there is a God. Then you got to work through all that stuff. Which one's right? How do you know? Here's why Jesus is. Let me tell you. Uh, but you can't even start with that anymore. You've got to start with, let's talk about creation. I mean, it's slid into more of a process uh, than it is kind of a, a one-time sit down where you're really talking through history and other stuff. And I just think that's interesting and worth noting and just a good takeaway. And hopefully what you guys do is get out and share the gospel more as you're reading through this and looking through this. And I, and I think you're going to need Romans 1 more and more as you do that. So I just hit pause there just to highlight that. So, okay, so what's Paul done? He's talked about the theme is the gospel and how we need it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the right way we can, the way we can live in a right relationship with God is through belief in what he's done for us, not what we can do. So he's making the case, hey, we have all, we all need the gospel because we all have broken hearts. We all have sin in our life. And so he's making his progression through this argument. And his first way of doing that was talking about the guy who never knew God, who never claimed God, who never grew up in religious settings or whatever, and saying that guy stands condemned. He's rightly accused. He's found guilty, has no excuse because God's shown him creation. Okay, so the second man, he's going to put up on the stand. He's kind of anticipating here, how are people going to interact with this? What are people going to say? And so he's going to go, hey, the moral man, let's put him on the stage. The moral man, he's going to talk about is the guy who, who knows right and wrong. Okay, so we start in chapter two. How do we know he knows right and wrong? Because he tells people what's right and what's wrong. So he gets on to the people who do the wrong things. So, uh, and this is what's going to condemn that person. So verse two. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And then down in verse, verse 15 is the way he puts it well. As he goes, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience always bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. So what, what condemns the moral man? The man who goes, I've got more rights than wrongs or I know right and wrong and I tell people what right and wrong is. It's their own conscience, right? They know in and of themselves, they don't keep the standard by which they call people to. 
So that in and of itself is what, what, what calls people to uh, the fact that they're being judged and that they're rightly judged and that they're without excuse. So Paul is going to use the argument for the moral man, the man who claims right and wrong that their conscience uh, bears witness. And so, I mean, as you think about this, again, he's making a case that all of humanity needs the gospel and he has to start with telling them why they need it. So he's already talked about people who've lived amongst creation, which is all of us. Now he's talking about all of us who claim right and wrong. Okay, and so everybody, no matter if you try to claim that you don't or not, but for all, all the way up to this point especially, have always had systems of right and wrong. Any culture you study of any time, anywhere, has had laws and had uh, government and had standards of things, right? And so C.S. Lewis is a great read. It's probably a lot of us maybe spent some time with him, but he uses the natural law argument of just, hey, when we start to claim that there's right and wrong, where did that right and wrong start? Who programmed that, right? There, there had to have been something, a higher power that put us in there. But more than that, what Paul's doing is he's saying, when we're claiming things are right and wrong, and we say some things are right and some things are wrong, yet we do the things we know we're not supposed to do, and we don't do the things we're supposed to do, you condemn yourself in your own conscience. So that's why, I mean, he puts in there uh, thoughts uh, in their conflicting thoughts, verse 15, picking back up there, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Right, so their thoughts of, I, I know what I'm not supposed to do, but I do it. I'm excused from the righteousness I proclaim to other people. And I'm rightly accused of the condemnation. So Paul's saying, hey, you are left without excuse. You are rightly found guilty before God. You are in need of something outside of yourself, your moral standard, and your efforts. And this is why the, the gospel would have been offensive to these kind of people because, and this is where we can slide into, right? All of us into a works-based theology, even after being saved. This is what hurts those is, is if you're saying that my, in the gospel, it's the power of God that brings salvation. The moral man is saying it's the power of my works that bring my salvation, right? Or that uh, get me into heaven. And what they do in verse, four, in verse four, five, and six is they presume on God's grace, so this is what Paul says about that. Or do you not presume, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repent? But because of your hand, or of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness judgment will be revealed. And so he's just saying, hey, you, you think that because you've got more rights than wrongs that God is gonna be kind to you? and that he's gonna see your rights and ignore your wrongs. Okay, th this is the problem. This is a, a, a heavy, this, this same train of thought is definitely still out there, right? And this is something I think us Christians fall into of thinking that now we were started by God loved us, he saved us, he did something for us. Now I've got to keep doing things for him so I keep earning his love, right? And we, we twist it. But even here, the moral man, the, the guys we walk around with as you're out there asking people questions, trying to share the gospel with them, what they'll say is, yeah, I'm a good person. I try my best. Why is God going to let me in heaven? Well, you know, I, I haven't really murdered anybody. I haven't stolen a ton of stuff. You know, I, I kind of get mad here and I do some stuff that aren't right. I know. But ultimately, I mean, I'm a good, I'm a good guy. And God has to be kind enough to where he, he knows we can't be perfect. So, I'm, I'm assuming that his kindness will show me and give me a reason to get into heaven. And this is where Paul's picking up that the righteousness of God is pure perfection and holiness, right? And so he's gonna get into, we're about to lead into the privileged Jew. But when you, when you uh, if you think about a judge here on earth, right? If I come to a judge and I just accidentally was driving, I was texting and I accidentally hit and killed somebody, 
right? And I go, you know, I've, I've never texted before on my phone. I've driven a hundred times. I've actually, I'm on, a, I'm on a board that's against texting and driving. I've stopped a lot of crashes. I've done a lot. I've done a lot of philanthropy. You have to understand this was an accident. I, I would never do this again. The judge cannot rightly in his justice let you go because you had a hundred good works, right? But this is how people think about religion or how they think about God's gonna let them in. This is the argument of the moral man. Will my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? And I'm gonna presume on God's kindness. But the problem is God is just. He is loving, but he is just. And those two things don't compromise each other. And there is rightful condemnation for those who have not kept perfectly the commandments of God or the right things they're supposed to do. So they stand judged. So moving on. Real quick. Okay, the third and final person that Paul is going to put up on the stand and is going to build a case and make the argument that you, you stand condemned, you stand guilty, you are without excuse, and you need the gospel. Okay, the last and third and probably the hardest is the privileged Jew. Okay, so that's going to pick up really in 2.17 and work its way through 3.8 if you're, if you're following, around, following along in the text. And here's what the privileged Jew had. He would say, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, you're the wise one, you're the one with the knowledge, you're the one with the understanding, you're helping other people who don't understand as much as you. You're sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself also? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You, You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And here's what Paul's saying. Out of all people, the Jewish people had the deepest knowledge of who God was. They, for 2,000 years, back in Genesis 12, when God handpicked Abraham and then made a nation out of him and from him and said, you're gonna be my people in Exodus 19. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use you guys to show myself to the world. And he told Abraham, hey, through you, I'm gonna bless the world. And you guys are gonna understand what I'm like. I'm gonna give you Exodus 20, the law, so you can understand my character and relate to me rightly. The Jews had all that. The Jews had the prophets talking about the Messiah who was gonna come. They had David when he was sitting on top of uh, all of Israel, ruling um, from the top as king. And God made a covenant with him saying, I'm gonna bring from you someone from your lineage who's gonna have the throne, who's gonna be the king. So they had all this information. They had history of their people, their great, 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 great grandfathers who were there in the desert, who saw the manna, who saw the Red Sea split. I mean, that's who the Jews were. The Jews had much more than any Gentile or anybody who wasn't a Jew because they have been, the people of Israel have been walking with God 2,000 years up to this point. And Paul is gonna say, you out of everybody should know. And he's gonna say, you guys have the law. You have that which reveals God's holy, perfect character. And that's what ought to reveal to you your brokenness and need for him. And so in verse 25, through 29, he's going to say, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then 
He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So what he's getting here, this can be confusing if you haven't, if this is the first time you're hearing some of this stuff. What he's saying is you guys knew what the law called you to do and you did some of it, but you didn't keep all of it. So you broke the law. And you can't just break one piece of the law and not be held accountable to all of it, right? And so he's saying, hey, there's people who aren't circumcised, who don't have the traditions you have, yet they follow the law better than you. So they, in their character and just the way they live their life, are condemnation for you because you see them living the way you ought to live, right? It's like me when my wife and I are at a restaurant and we're sitting next to people. And I don't know if, if they're believers or not, but I know the way I'm treating my wife doesn't look near as good as the guy next to me and the way he's treating my wife for whatever reason. And that, that's condemnation. I'm like, man, I am not loving her the way I'm supposed to, right? So he uses other people and he's just saying, Jews, you guys get it. You've got it, you've had it. And you out of all people should know and understand what it's like to live in a right relationship with me and how that doesn't come from your own works and your own efforts. But yet you who have trusted in your works and your best attempt at obedience to the law and thinking that is going to be what saves you, you stand condemned, rightly judged, and there's no excuse. And that, that kind of leads, and he's going to anticipate, okay, the Jews are going to go, okay, well, what the heck? Does it, does it not matter that I'm the Jew? It's like, uh, I think of it the guy who has a football coach, or his dad is his football coach, so he's born at the age three, and just to, or born, and then at the age three, he starts playing football, and he's just bred to be the quarterback, Right, and he finally gets to high school and he's competing for that spot and uh, somebody else beats him out. And he's like, what in the world? Was it not an advantage that my dad was the coach, you know, that I had all this resource? And it's going, no, you, that, that was an advantage, right? But it, what it was supposed to produce in you, it didn't produce in you. So you didn't become the quarterback, but it's not because you didn't have every opportunity. So that's what Paul is going to pick up that argument in chapter three. He says, what advantage has the Jew? Is there no value of circumcision? Much in every way, he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he's going to continue his argument. What, is some, uh, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. So again, they're saying, hey, if people haven't lived this way for a while, is that discrediting God's faithfulness towards us? And he goes, no, let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So again, he's saying what you guys have used for unrighteousness hasn't kept God from continuing to be righteous or kept God from continuing to pursue you and love you and why you need to understand the way he's pursued you right now, which is through the gospel, which is all the stuff you already know, the coming Messiah, and he's been here and you need to place your trust in him. So he's calling the privileged Jew back to the salvation through the gospel. So as we wrap up here, again, walking through this argument, Here's what Paul just did. He's saying the theme of this book is gonna be the gospel, trusting and believing in Christ. And those who believe in him, right, God through his power, through the gospel, imparts salvation into people and gives people his righteousness, a right relationship with him. And it's not based on your works or your knowledge or your efforts. It's based in trusting in him. So to make his point, he puts up three people on the stand to, to represent all of humanity for all mankind. So everyone who's ever lived fits into one of these buckets, if not more, and say, man, the pagan who didn't grow up in the Jewish system or religion or didn't know God stands condemned because of creation. Why does the moral man stand condemned? It's because they had conscience and they knew what was right and wrong. And they still did what was wrong and they didn't always do what was right. And why does the third and final privileged Jew stand condemned? Because he, out of all people, has had everything he needed to rightly relate for God for a long time, especially in the law, 
and he chose not to. And he chose to count righteousness based on works of the law and not in God. So Paul's just made his argument, and this is how he wraps up. Uh, verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And really 9, 10, and 11, he says this, chapter three, what then, are the Jews any better off? Right, are they any better off because their dad was a football coach, they've had the laws for a long time? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so what this ought to do tonight, I mean, if, if we, if the, if the gospel hasn't been up to this point, a fire underneath your rear in an appropriate way, right, that's motivated you, part of the problem I can guarantee you is a lack of understanding of our own need for that medicine, okay? And so this tonight, what we go through, and as you guys spend more time, you'll get way more out of this as you read it and pray through it than you do when people are up here teaching. So as you mull over this and you just gotta get yourself to a spot where you're realizing deeper and deeper your need of salvation, you have to put yourself as the audience to who Paul was writing to. And he's trying to make the case before you can truly grasp the riches of the gospel, before Christ really becomes in all the ways beautiful and meaningful to you in the way that he should be, it starts with understanding your own depravity, your own broken heart, your own need for that medicine. And that's the case Paul is building. And so I, I go back to that. It just tonight you came in here and the gospel isn't what drove you. And when we're sitting there talking about Romans 16 and 17, the gospel, and it's kind of something you're like, all right, I'm ready to get through that so I can understand the outline and the argument. You know, something's off with that. And that's where you just, and that's where all of us, so whether you have a relationship with the Lord, I don't know where some of you are coming in tonight, or whether you've been walking with him for a while, uh, all of this is applicable for all of us. Why? Because all of us are mankind. He's already accused us multiple times of why we need the gospel. But it's where we want to sit this next week, just looking ourselves in the mirror going, okay, I've got to remind myself why I need Christ and walk yourself through that, okay? And I don't get to give you all the pick-me-ups. Next week uh, takes a turn, a turn for the better. It's what I call the great two-point reversal, which is a wrestling term, and we can get there another time. But next week is where you pick up, and next week and the rest of the book and everything you learn, hopefully the rest of your life, will be impacted by the way you guys marinate and sit in the first couple of chapters of Romans and understand what Paul's doing and put yourself in that context. All right, so what we want to do, we got about 13 minutes here and we'll just do Q&A. So is anything I kind of flew over uh, or rambled or whatever and you want to re-clarify or just any questions you have coming out of that, uh, we'll do a little Q&A. Yeah, the box? Oh, it's right here. Boom. All right, any questions? Oh, here we go again, round two, two for two. <laughs> again, I wrestled, I didn't use sports and balls and stuff. Ah, uh, yeah. I think it's the red one. There's lots of buttons back there. All right, just say it loud, I'll repeat it. Yeah, it's, it's the law. The law, the law. is showing them, yeah. Okay. The law shows them, hey, this is 
what you should be doing. And they look at the law. So his question was, what, what was it really that condemned the privileged Jew? And the main thing is the law. Hey, God, God told you what you should do. Black and white, go restart in Exodus 20 and read where God gives them the law. He laid it all out there for them. And nobody kept the law perfectly. So it was the law that ultimately condemned. Thank you. Yeah. Good question. You got it. He's ready. Boom. Test, test. Okay, I have a question about 24, okay, and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie of worship, and so they created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What does that mean God gave them up in the lust of the hearts of purity? Yeah, what does it mean that God gave them up? In 24 and 25. 24 yeah. 25. Yeah, he's saying, hey, guys, you, you, you have a choice, okay? I'm, I'm not hiding myself from you. And what they did was suppress that truth and chose to go their own way. And so what God says, I'm going to allow you to go the way you want to go. So he gives them up to do what they wanted to do. Okay. Does that make sense or better? Yeah, I just wanted to make sure because yeah. it's like lust and there's impurity. Because impurity can reflect a relationship with God and your family and all that stuff. Yeah, totally. Impacts everything. Okay. It's good. What else? All right, here. Oh, you got to throw deep? Do you mind, ma'am, or do you mean just walk up? <laughs> you what? Yeah, she'll be loud and I'll repeat it. I got here, it. Here, here, let, let, let me do this. Let me do this. this let me just be a gentleman. That question is, um, do you think that giving up and giving over, is that like a societal, cultural level or at an individual level? Yeah, what, what do you mean by that? Explain that. Well, like... Like there's a passage, like in the Old Testament, you see that God does it. He gives them up, but he, he's doing it kind of to the nation of Israel as a whole. And in the Romans 1, it's not clear to me whether he means, oh, well, when you as an individual reject me, I give you up to things. Or is it, oh, when you as a society reject me, then I give the society up. Yeah, or is great, it both? Maybe? Great question. Yeah, so she's asking, I don't know how well that, that came through, but... Is this going to impact all of society? Like if you guys mess up, the society is going to go this way, like in Old Testament. So some of that Old Testament, right, when you study the book of Joshua, all things are going well. They're being the way they were supposed to be. But coming uh, out of Exodus, they rejected God. The book of Numbers, when the people of Israel didn't walk in the way they were supposed to, which was the story of the 12 spies in Numbers 13, it had an impact on the entire nation. Immediately, they're wandering. And so it is different in that way. That just because, let's just say, one of us in here goes and does something tonight we know we shouldn't do, okay? Uh, sleep with somebody who's not our spouse. That's not going to cause an immediate wandering with us in the same way as Israel as a nation. But absolutely, this is what's always true, is that sin and sin's effect has always a bigger consequence than we think, right? That comes out of Genesis 3 of uh, the, the, the initial lies of the enemy, the third one being the consequences of sin aren't that big of a deal. So I'd say it's different in that it's not going to immediately have an impact on us, uh, in the sense of where we're all going to be sent wandering like that. But absolutely, the impacts of our sin impact way greater than just us. And then, yeah, you could say over time, if an entire nation walks in this way, then yeah, the majority of the people are shifting this way. The, the culture is made up of the people and the higher people. And if they're all swaying this way, it's going to have a, a ripple effect for sure. But there is a difference between the Israel nation and uh, just Christians, believers.
Somebody else is thinking it, so just ask. <laughs> oh, here you go. Um, I don't want to follow up on the same exact verse, but yeah. on 24, where they're talking about giving them up in the lust of their hearts. I've kind of wrestled through this and came to my own conclusions, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, and I think Paul alludes to it later on in chapter 9 when he talks about vessels for dishonorable use and honorable use. But we all yeah. know people that before they were Christians, like, had long stretches of their lives where they were doing things that they shouldn't be doing or just living a bad life. Yeah. How come in those situations, God steps into their life and, you know, sparks something in them to seek him out, right? Mm. But some other people, he just, you know, quote unquote, gives them over to the lust of their hearts. Like, why does he choose some, but then others he just allows to, you know, be permanently separate from them? Yeah, great, great question. Let me, let me see if I can rephrase that, make sure I answer the right one. Uh, you're asking why some people have the same two stories for 20 years, of as much rebellion as you can possibly imagine. One, be, one saved, one's not. Is that kind of the question you're getting at? Why does is, why is God save one, not the other? Yeah, great question. So yes, you will uh, wrestle with that more deeply in chapter nine, some other spots, uh, and kind of how election and what that word means and what we're talking about. Uh, but ultimately, here's what we need to understand. It's not like God's, uh, it, a lot of people think that it's God's fault we don't choose him. And what God is saying is everybody chooses not to choose me, right? And so why God chooses some people and not others um, we, there's, there is, it's because he chooses whom he chooses and doesn't who he doesn't. So again, that, that's getting into a big conversation, which when you guys get to 9, 10, 11, you'll want to come for the sovereignty week is going to be explained more in depth. But yeah, it, it is, I mean, that's the, the potter uses some clay for some reason. We're all of the same substance and he chooses which ones he wants to build up for honorable use and which ones he doesn't, which ought to make Christians the most humble people in the world. Right, it, it ought to change uh, in this, I'm, I'm preaching myself now, but when you look at somebody and you just go, I can't believe he would do that, right? And you just go, okay, I got a pit pause because if God didn't interrupt and intervene my life and pull me out of the pit, you know, Ephesians 1 and 2, I was dead in my sins. A dead man cannot raise himself up, right? And God chose to save me. So I, I better be slow to cast and judge in that way other people. Right now, absolutely, the sin of people is wrong and you gotta call it out. I mean, that's what Paul just did for three chapters was call out sin and tell you why you're condemned. But it ought to not make us higher than. That's good. All right, got time for a few more. Yep, right here. If you wanna be loud, I can repeat it for you. Okay. Yeah. If you're talking to someone and you think of these basic, three basic precepts that you just told us to Paul talk, mm-hmm. that would be, like if someone says, like you said, I don't believe in God, you can use creation as a way to talk to them. Or if you're talking to a regular person, you know, mm-hmm. that says, yeah, I believe in God, where do you start there? Yeah. Great question. So yeah, let me, let me rephrase it. So you're saying, yeah, how do we use this stuff? Can we use it? When do we use it? All that good stuff. Yeah, it's a great question. And just remember, I mean, when Paul's writing it, he's writing about regular people. He's thinking about just the people who are walking around and how he can 
use the arguments of scripture and God and the existence of him to interact with him. So absolutely, these are the kind of things, I mean, I frame up the way I have conversations based on the way Paul kind of frames some of these arguments. So I haven't had just personally a ton of interaction with true Jewish religious people who believe that and follow that and would re- reject Christ or Jesus as Christ. And still, and so I haven't got a ton into that. But as far as the other two, absolutely, yeah. When people are, um, and that's what it feels more like, honestly, is people are going, I don't think there is a God. And if there is a God, why does it matter? I've got my life I'm doing And so you just start to work through, hey, why do you think it's important there's a God? And what shows you there's a God? And what if I told you God was like this? You know, the the question uh, Todd used, and I love that question, is what do you think the theme of the Bible is and and the point? And what you get a lot is, oh, God just wants you to obey our Ten Commandments, and they don't know anything about how Christ walks through. So yeah, when people kind of use that, I don't know if there's a God, it doesn't really matter. I talk about, okay, if these things point to a God, and he's there, and if he's revealed himself, you think it's worth checking out and just go down that uh, train of thought. And then the people um, who kind of fall more into the moral camp of, yeah, I do more good than bad. I try and talk about, okay, let's talk about being just. What, what about the analogy I used, a judge, right? And so I kind of get graphic. I'm just, I'll be like, hey, so you have a little sister or mom? Yeah, I do. I was like, okay, so what if a guy just uh, actually or came in and kidnapped your mom and raped her and then went to court. And I get graphic like that because immediately it does what it's supposed to do. It, it's like, okay, that's wrong. There needs to be justice there. But I'm like, hey, that's the only wrong thing that guy ever did in his life, right? The only wrong thing. What should that judge do? So people know innately justice and they understand that, but they it's a, have a harder time connecting that to really who God is in the practical implications of the way that pulls out. So again, that's, that's graphic. I know it is, but I... It's maybe it's too much, but uh, had had conversations, so it's good. Yeah. Uh, in chapter two, verse six. Where two, uh, chapter two, verse six. Hi. All right. Yeah. Um, where he's. Um, He's quoting Psalm 62:12 and talking about how God will repay each person according to what they have done. Yet, obviously, he's talking about grace throughout. So, is the doing is that just their choice? It's not good works doing that. Yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not following you. Ask, ask it again. Um, I, so, Paul's obviously talking about grace throughout here, right? And how no one, no one does good. We're saved by grace. But then he says here, God will repay each person according to what they have done. That just stands out to me as like. Yeah, yeah, about? great observation. This is one of, we kind of throw this into interpretive challenges. Like, okay, wait a second. This seems to be like Paul is saying that what you do is dependent on if you'll be saved or not, right? Is it based on your works? Is that kind of what you're getting at? It seems like he's talking about this and now he's saying, okay, now what you do is what. So again, going back to the context piece, the, the bumpers, right? What's the argument Paul's making? The argument Paul's making through these three chapters is that, all have sinned, right? And everyone stands judged and everyone's without excuse. And so now we're going, okay, there seems to be a piece of this in there that seems to say something different, okay? A lot of other places people go is James 2, 14 through 18. And so, yeah, so what Paul, uh, let's just read it real quick. He will render to each one according to his works to those who, who by pay, check time, 830. Okay, I'll try and be quick. Here, let's do this. We're trying to do a hard stop. I'd love to talk to you about that a little bit more, but we're trying to stop at 830. I know other people got to go, so I won't go for another four minutes on that. But if you'd love to hear the rest of that, 
Well, we'll talk about that up here, but let me pray us out and then let's hit that question. God, I just, man, I, I'm, I'm grateful for your word and, I, and unworthy to even get up here and, and just the total dependence it is on you and your righteousness and what you're trying to do. And you just use broken people to help broken people. And so I just, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the way that you encourage uh, my friends here tonight through your word and how you're using broken vessels. I thank you for all the hard work behind the scenes uh, that Taylor and others have done to just make this happen for Nathan and Blake uh, and, and all the stuff a lot of people don't see so tonight can happen. Thank you for the way people give and resource so staff can be here and we have facilities and um, places we can host so we can train and study your word. You are just, we are, have, you've given us so much here at Watermark and we're grateful. I thank you for, uh, again, just the gospel. I pray that it would move us, that it would change the way we live, that we would, because of all that's gonna come out of these next two weeks, we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices. I pray that if the gospel has gone soft and dull in our heart and the flame has started to um, dwindle, that you would use these first three chapters to remind us of our great need for you and ultimately exalt you in, in the sacrifice you made. And so help us be bold with it and unashamed as Paul was and help us to just spend time marinating and understanding and growing in your word. And it's in your name we pray, amen.